Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, saving civilization, honey. Yes, yes you are. And joining us <laughs> on our mission to save civilization with a, a ton of freedom, <laughs> his second time on the show... One of the hosts of the Secrets and Spies podcast, Mr. Chris Carr. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. Thank you very much for having me. And funny enough, you mentioned freedom. I had a pint of freedom the other day at a Korean restaurant, and it tasted good. Freedom oh. always tastes good. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I highly recommend it. It's a, I think it's a popular beer in South Korea or something like that, but it's very good. Yeah. We're already starting off with beer recommendations. So, this, yeah, is, this, this is already going off the rails. I love it. Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Chris, we had you on famously for uh, a, a beloved episode in the Spy Hard's back catalogue, and that is Spy Game. Uh, I think it was just over a year ago now that that episode yeah. came out. You know, uh, firstly, it was a wonderful episode, very well received, and everyone loved hearing you. So I'm glad you're back to you know outclass us once again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I don't know if that's going to happen, but. Uh... <laughs> But thank you very much for having me back. And I really, really enjoyed doing that Spy Game episode last year. And um, I just have one question. Have you revised the knock list to bring to actually kind of make a correction and put Spy Game on it? <laughs> so, uh, OK, so a, a little bit of like insider here. The answer, the, the short answer is no, we haven't. Oh, but that's a shame. but <laughs> very soon we have an interview with the writer of Spy Game, who you've had on your wonderful show as well, Mr. Yeah, Michael Frost yeah. Beckner, and yeah, we talk great. about this this gap in the knock list and uh, if that should be corrected. So we do have that chat, but I think as it stands, it's still a no. But it's a no with like, yeah, but you should probably watch it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we should start a Twitter campaign to get this changed. But there we go. <laughs> it'll, it'll be that coming into the knock list and something like you only live twice coming off the knock list or something like that. I think that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's a few. I think that Born Identity and Burn After Reading are the three that kind of stand out. Like I fought for Burn After Reading the most out mm -hmm. of those three. Mm -hmm. um, but I think if people were to kind of like poke holes in the knock list, those are the three that would jump out. But I think we made very solid arguments each time as to why they weren't included. And ultimately, it's just two idiots on the internet <laughs> and our uneducated opinions. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's what the internet was founded on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't say uneducated because, God, how many films do you guys watch now? I think you've watched more spy films than even I have. It's, it's in the one. This is probably scraping 150 soon, at least, I think. Yeah. We're very yeah, close. So well done. Yeah. Well done. Uh, thank you. I, I guess that makes us experts now, maybe. Maybe we've earned the expert badge. Uh, we'll find out. You let us know, everyone. But I want to know, Chris, before we sort of <laughs> yeah. segue yes. into the film this week, mm -mm. you know, apart from Secrets and Spies, you're a director in your own right. You work on your own projects. And what's been going on with you since you were last on the show? Well, today, um, and it's an interesting day to, to have happened on. So today is obviously the anniversary of uh, the 70th anniversary of Casino Royale being published. Mm -hmm. And today I just signed my first ever option for a screenplay. Um, unfortunately, I can't say an awful lot about it because it may amount to nothing but it was quite a big deal for me um so it's it's a feature film script that i co-wrote um all about the world of espionage geopolitics and intrigue uh, my my area um and um 
that's probably the biggest thing that's happened since we spoke, and it literally has just happened this morning. Um, so <laughs> it's taken me a year and a bit to get to that point. Um, so that's been really good. Um, and then and then you mentioned my podcast, Secrets and Spies. So now we have a co-host, yeah. Matt Fulton, who's the author of Active Measures. Um, and he and I are now doing a, a new strand called Espresso Martini, where we kind of look at the spy stories of the month. And we're now doing that twice a month. Um, and my God, there are a lot of spy stories when you look at it on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we could probably do a daily show, but I don't think either of us have the time for that at the moment. Um, so those, those are the key things, really. Um, sorry, I can't say much more about this film project. And fingers crossed it actually leads to something because now the producers are trying to get it financed and uh, and made. So um, you never know. This this That might end up on, the, um, on, on this show one day in a few years. <laughs> well, I, firstly... Congratulations are in order. Thank I, you. I, I, I mean, yeah. it's very much like a spy story where you can't tell us anything. It makes complete <laughs> sense. It's actually yeah, yeah. spot on. So, um, <laughs> well, I guess that's all. I mean, we can talk a bit maybe offline a little about it, but like, mm. we wish you all the best with it. And hopefully, you Thank can come you. back on a, as a spy master interview one day. Wouldn't that be weird? That'd be nice. That'd be cool. But, <laughs> what, a, what, a, yeah. what a strange upgrade. That'd be a turn from, of the books. From, yeah. <laughs> and you're smart. Don't, don't be like the uh, Star Wars people announcing what it is and what it's going to be and then only to have it yeah perhaps yeah. not happen yeah i know that's mm. smart hold the cards close like bond would yeah yeah superstition man because there's yeah. a few near i'll call them near misses i've had over the years where you want to tell everybody mm-hmm. but then you feel like you'll look like a clown because they just don't amount to anything because that's just the nature of this business sadly so yeah so yeah so fingers crossed <laughs> yeah. i've had that before with us there's there was a guest we had booked many mm. many years ago or a while back and i told one person that they were going to come on the show and then that person vanished Mm. and i was like ah never doing that again <laughs> yeah that's it yeah that's it yeah my new way of handling that is if there is someone exciting we're talking to about a potential interview i will p- tell people this might happen but i don't know <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah yeah exactly yeah exactly best way to be yeah yeah cool well i think it's time to head over to the fingernail factory mm. oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> cam what are we talking about this week Yes, a very appropriate movie for having Chris Carr back on. We previously talked about Spy Game, directed by Tony Scott. This week, we are going to talk about 2008's Body of Lies, directed by Ridley Scott. It's keeping it all in the family. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, again, one of those new ones to me. I hadn't seen it before. I'm familiar with some of Ridley Scott's work, but not this one particularly. Chris, had you seen this film before? Oh, yeah, long time ago. I, I missed it in the cinema, sadly. Um, I have no idea what I was doing in 2008, but um, it's one of these films I kind of caught on DVD um, a few years ago. I've, I've, I've probably watched it about five or six times in total, wow. I think. So, and, this, and this was the first time I've rewatched it in a good probably three years. Uh, and what about you, Cam? Um, I didn't see this in theaters, and I don't know why, because I know 2008, I was writing for my university paper, and I was seeing everything everything but for some reason i didn't wind up seeing this one and i watched it on video um and honestly my memories of it were pretty vague when i sat down to rewatch it uh, the other night i think i was okay on it the first time but mm. nothing mm. that really stood out mm. or i guess begged revisits the way that maybe chris watched it over the years <laughs> nerdily yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, i'm sitting there going oh i've seen it twice chris like six times maybe maybe yeah. maybe 10 <laughs> who knows i mean how many times have you watched spy game Oh, God, 20 plus. I, I've lost track now. Um, yeah. 
You see, that's how Scott is for Condor Man. That's yeah. the only movie <laughs> that Scott can make that claim for. Yeah. I actually have watched that over 10 times. I can. No. Are you Seriously? serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you? Oh, right, cool, cool. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've even got it on my phone. But I'm doing like long distance nice. journeys and I just can't be bothered to watch anything else. <laughs> have they shown it at the Prince Charles yet? Because they should do. I've asked. I've emailed. I've letter bombed. Yeah. I've done everything. Like, I've just, I just, I've, <laughs> I, I want it on screen. But yeah. uh, I, I think at this point, I'm just going to have to hire a theatre for everyone and just screen it myself. You should. You should. Yeah. Condor Man. Could be a nice live event for you guys. <laughs> Who's turning up for Condor Man? Yeah, some people are like, hey, come to a, a Bond screening. That makes sense. But no, we're playing Condor Man. Mm. Keep it secret, whatever it is. And then, and then people find out it's Condor Man. <laughs> Watch them all fly away as the movie starts. <laughs> Um, well, if you're not familiar with Body of Lies, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. And there's already a red flag in the first line because it reminds me directly of the film The Recruit. But here we go anyway. Body of Lies. Trust no one. Deceive everyone. That, that tagline must be used countless times over the history of movies, right? I'm surprised we haven't bumped into it more often than just this and The Recruit, to be fair. Yeah. 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 The CIA's hunt is on for the mastermind of a wave of terrorist attacks. Roger Ferris is the agency's man on the ground, moving from place to place, scrambling to stay ahead of the ever-shifting events. An eye in the sky, a satellite link, watches Ferris. At the other end of that real-time link is CIA's Ed Hoffman, strategizing events from thousands of miles away. And as Ferris nears the target, he discovers trust can be just as dangerous as it is necessary for survival. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of words for saying nothing at all. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. it, it's, it's whenever I read these, I'm wondering when they're based on books, how much they are just kind of like somewhat copying like a the lot of the content to the back thing. of the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, it, yeah I, 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 weirdly, it actually doesn't really touch on the plot of the film. Like that's basically the relationship at the start of the film. It does nothing else from that point. Yeah, mm. no, that's true. Well, hey, I guess it gives you a flavor of it's a spy film at least. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm interested to sort of hear this one because this is falling into sort of the territory of like the Bournes are successful, Casino Royale's come mm. back. 2008 is a busy time for spy movies. Mm, mm. How did we get such pedigree behind a spy film and why is it that no one's talking about this film? Yeah, so this was based, as I said, on a book um, that was initially called Penetration uh-huh. and then they changed the name to Body of Lies. Wisely. <laughs> <laughs> Scott bought 15 <laughs> copies of the book when it hit shelves. Uh, yeah. Actually, it might have done better in the box office with a name like that. People would have just gone to the wrong film thinking it was something else. They would have been so disappointed. <laughs> so disappointed. Yeah. Everyone's yeah, turning up in trench coats and just like uh, big buckets of popcorn for some reason. Yeah. yeah nudge, nudge, yeah. wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> They're all like um, Robert De Niro and Taxi Driver going yes. to the theater. Yeah. Yes. I was just thinking of Condor Man with uh, trench coats. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, sure. Or the movie Trench Coat. Yeah. Also with trench coats. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, uh... So the book was written by David Ignatius, who's an American journalist and novelist, often compared to Graham Greene. And mm. uh, basically, the rights for this were snapped up very quickly after publication. Mm. Uh, I'm curious, like, I know, Scott, you haven't read this book. Chris, did you ever read it? I haven't read this book. I've read my favorite spy book. is actually written by David Ignatius, and it's Agents of Innocence. And for whatever reason, I've not read any of his other novels. I don't know why I should do. Um, so, unfortunately, I haven't read the, the book behind this. 
Okay. I, I just want to call you out for a second. You just automatically assumed I hadn't read this book, Cam. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, what is that? <laughs> Can we just break that down for a minute? What? How low is your opinion of me? You just think, nah, he ain't read a book. <laughs> I was like, this is a pretty fair assumption, I think, to make. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're right, but still, I'm offended. <laughs> for all you know there's a phd you've written on it but <laughs> wow <laughs> well there's like certain bond books i would be like scott have you read that one versus like <laughs> penetration by david ignatius i'm like there's no way there's no way imagine i was just thinking imagine reading that on the tube <laughs> scott have you ha, have you read sea spot run have you seen the hungry hungry caterpillar scott have you read that one <laughs> yeah Mm. Could you imagine having a copy of Penetration on the tube and you're trying to read it and, mm. and people looking at this book that you're reading? And, and uh, I remember years ago, I got mocked for reading um, the novel of Die Hard, which had a different name, but the, the, uh, it was called Everything Lasts, Nothing Lasts Forever. And the book I got was obviously a film tie-in and had Die Hard on the front cover. And somebody went, oh, look, he's reading Die Hard. So imagine if I was reading Penetration. You know, It's, it's the awkward <laughs> bit where you're reading the book and then you sort of look up and make eye contact with someone sitting across from you yeah and it's yeah. like uh, uh sorry um look right down again <laughs> i didn't mean you <laughs> and by the way the novel die hard's based on is really good <laughs> is it yeah it's quite dark actually it's quite it's darker than the the film um and it's it's interesting it's kind of it's sort of yeah it's a bit different because it's actually a sequel to another book but that's a whole other podcast so if you ever do a die hard episode let me know yeah because there was <laughs> i think the original book was turned into a movie wasn't it with frank sinatra yeah yeah so there's yeah it's the detective um and and frank sinatra was had the option to come back for die hard because of the character i think it's joe leland i think's the character's name God, I can actually remember a name. That's impressive. Um, and um, yeah, yeah. So th then obviously through the whole process of making Die Hard into what it was, that changed. Um, and eventually it became Bruce Willis and a very different character because he's much older in the novel. He's like an old guy who's retired and he's gone to see his daughter at the Christmas party rather than his wife. Um, so yeah, no, very interesting book. Uh, yeah, Nothing Lasts Forever uh, by Frederick. Oh God, is it Frederick Thorpe? Roderick Thorpe. Roderick, Roderick Thorpe, Thorpe, I think it is. That's Roderick great. Thorpe. There, that's the way it goes. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait for uh, Frank Sinatra's next hit. Ho ho ho! I have a machine gun. Can <laughs> <laughs> you imagine that? <laughs> well, probably through AI, you could do that now. Probably, you? probably. <laughs> now, Scott, I assume you've read that book. <laughs> yes, of course, I've read all the books, Cam. <laughs> Okay, fair. <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so after um, Warner Brothers purchased the rights to this, uh, Ridley Scott was very interested. And I mean, I think we all know about Ridley Scott, but began his career as a, t as a production designer in TV in the mid-60s and really broke through with the 1977 movie The Duelists with Keith Carradine and Harvey Keitel. And from there just became one of the biggest filmmakers we have today because he had Alien in 79 and he just rolled on through. And this was his follow-up to American Gangster. And he worked with Crow a number of times at this point. I think this was their fourth collaboration, I think. And um, I'm just you know curious because I think everyone listening pretty much knows who Ridley Scott is. If everyone has a favorite Ridley Scott film or what Ridley Scott like means to them as a director. There's a lot of assumptions going on today, Cam. That's <laughs> what I do. <laughs> and he's still going. He's 85 mm. years old, I think. Um, and honestly, there's a life goal, isn't it? To still be directing Hollywood blockbusters at the age of 85. But <laughs> Yeah, he's directing Gladiator 2, probably as we speak. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Blade Runner. That's the one. Yeah, Blade Runner. I think that's the yeah. one that sort of like if I think of his that's the film that comes mm. to mind. But like Gladiator is a a a close second. I think you know, and, mm. and of course. You know, we had one of the writers of Gladiator on many years ago. Now, David Franzoni, who wrote a spy film in his own right as well. So, yeah, we got a little connection to Gladiator as well there. Yeah, that's good. I love. Yeah, I quite like The Martian. Um, I think it's a really good actor's film for Ridley Scott. I think it's sort of one of the most beautifully directed from an acting point of view. But yeah, I think for me, Alien is going to be the big one. Um, mm. What I've always liked about Ridley Scott is he works like just constantly mm. there's a high degree of professionalism so i don't like like several ridley scott movies but mm. he because he keeps making work he'll pull me back with the next one and he's just one of those like reliable talents that you know i'll sit there and be like oh i didn't care for robin hood but then like you know a kingdom of heaven or mm. you know whatever whatever one of his more recent ones is will really grab me um so just one of the great talents um but yeah like he referred to this movie, the entire thing. They were like, this movie was shot, you know, in multiple, lo- a lot of locations, big effects work, all that. And he referred to this movie as a doddle. <laughs> That's a very British word right there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. Because he runs sometimes like 12 cameras at a time on things mm. and is just mm. like, has his run and gun approach. And he's still doing it, still doing that in his 80s. Yeah. Yeah. And still man- managed to make that look good too. Because, um, I, t- I tell you, every time I try and use more than one camera, the DP I'm with usually freaks out. Mm. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, how is it Ridley Scott manages to make it look beautiful when you're worried it's going to turn into an episode of Neighbours or something? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <It's> like... <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, for the screenplay for this movie, they brought in William Monaghan, who had started out as a magazine writer and editor and novelist. And what happened was, in 2001, Fox bought a spec script he'd written for a movie called Tripoli, about the march on Tripoli during the Barbary Wars. And he'd met with Ridley Scott about potentially directing that movie. And basically, over the course of the conversation, Ridley wasn't ultra interested in Tripoli as a film, but they started talking about the Crusades. And that mm. gave way to um, William Monaghan writing the screenplay for Kingdom of Heaven. Mm. And so they'd worked together in the past. And since that like William Monaghan had written The Departed and won an Oscar for it so he was definitely higher up the um you know the scale for screenwriters when he was brought back to write Body of Lies okay so like how many times did he collaborate with Ridley Scott I think uh I think it's a couple times at this Mm. point yeah um Mm. I think I think it's just the two major ones um, because what happened was William Monaghan started writing and directing himself and he made a couple okay. movies. He did a movie called London Boulevard with Colin Farrell and um, Mojave with Oscar Isaac. Not really seen very much. More recently, he uh, wrote The Tender Bar for Ben Affleck and the very recently released Marlowe with Liam Neeson, which oh. didn't really get the best reception, but was at least trying for something interesting in a marketplace that doesn't necessarily want such things. I appreciate seeing Liam Neeson in something that isn't a, a dad action flick now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly, yes. Mm. And uh, there was also a script polish done, uncredited, by Steve Zalian, who is one of the uh, the big names in screenwriting to this day. And we talked about him previously for Falcon and the Snowman. Yep. But he also worked on Clear and Present Danger, Schindler's List, uh, The Irishman more recently. And he also worked on American Gangster. 
And apparently, Steve Zalian's draft of this movie was crucial in getting Russell Crowe on board. Because he was kind of like a little bit wary. He wasn't sure he wanted to do it until he got this Zalian draft. They wrote it so he could shoot all of his scenes whilst either eating or sort of doing stuff in his house with a <laughs> headphone in. Yeah, that's uh, that would get most people on board. Well, uh, when Russell Crowe was hired, he was told he should gain a lot of weight. So he gained 63 pounds for the role. Mm. Um, so it wasn't a, necessarily a luxury role. But this was also a quick in the dead reunion because DiCaprio and Russell Crowe had co-starred in that 1995 Sam Raimi movie. And if you read any interview with these two during the period of Body and Lies, it's basically just like two old friends joking around through the course of the interview. Hmm. Oh, that's cool. It's a really good movie. I really like Quick and the Dead a lot. It's a Sharon Stone starring Western, mm. very stylish. And DiCaprio was very young and said that Russell Crowe was incredibly nice to him on set and really made him feel welcome as a young actor coming in and did not forget that. Kind of like the Sydney Poitier River Phoenix dynamic. Is that kind of the same thing? Yeah, yeah, okay, exactly, yeah. yeah. All right, fine. And just also with casting, a prestigious Indian actor and filmmaker, Nana Padekar, mm -hmm. was approached to appear in this movie. You know, if you look him up on Wikipedia, he has an incredible list of credits and awards to his name in his native India for the films there. Um, they approached him and he turned it down due to not wanting to play a terrorist, which is what they were looking at him for. And this was actually quite big news over in India at the time. News that he turned it down, the news that he was making yeah. in, in the process of doing it. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, that he turned it down and that, you know, his reasons for doing so. Mm. Completely justified. Yeah, totally. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And um, Ridley Scott wanted to shoot this movie in Dubai, but was denied due to the politically sensitive material of the movie. And so the movie was shot in Morocco and then obviously the US. Mm. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It, it sort of seems to have like a bit of a travel log aspect to it, but it really feels like they are sort of shooting in the same places and then telling you it's different places. Mm. Yeah, some different color filters on, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I got that yeah. impression from it. It seemed a little bit of a cheat there. Yeah. Uh, and then this was the first director of photography credit for Alexander Witt who mm. would go on to be a, a second unit on the entire Daniel Craig Bond era. Almost. I think there's one movie. He didn't do Quantum of Solace, but all the other Bond films, he was the um, the second unit director on. So uh, if you look up Alexander Witt, he has a whole list of prestigious credits. And uh, a man who may or may not be appearing on this show in the future. Mm. I was going to ask you actually who 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 may be uh, coming on connected to this, but there we go. Coming on has been on. Mm. Oh, nice. Yeah, <laughs> Haven't had Ridley. Yeah. Have you managed to get Ridley in between shots on Gladiator Two? <laughs> he, he's uh, he, he's not answering my call for some reason. He mustn't have his like his headset in, like they were in the film. <laughs> Ridley Scott would be one of those dream ones. It would be so exciting to get him. But mm. I've watched enough Ridley Scott interviews to know it would not be an easy interview to do. Yeah, <laughs> that would be one I would call in sick for and leave you to just uh, fend for yourself on that one, Cam. Yeah, he's known to be a little prickly with interviewers, and um, yeah, it would be a little tense, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. The budget was seventy million dollars domestically. It did thirty nine point four international. It did seventy six point five for a worldwide total of one hundred and fifteen point nine. I actually remember at the time this was deemed a real like failure for this group. Uh, Ridley Scott had previously done a good year with Russell Crowe, which was like a mm. real flop. Mm. So this wasn't mm. regarded in the same way as that movie, but it was definitely seen as a 
pretty major underperformer. Well, it's 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 telling because I I posted about this on like social media, which isn't exactly the barometer. But when I <laughs> when I like put on I'm watching something, you usually get a bit of like people will interact and say, "Oh, I saw that." I haven't. Body of Lies didn't seem to get anything. Oh, that's a shame. Nothing really. Like, it, it was it was certainly not wow. not what I would expect from a film of this caliber with this sort of cast mm. and crew. That's that's mm. what surprised me. A lot of people say, oh, I haven't seen it. Uh, I wonder if it was like a marketing thing, maybe, or something like that. Mm. Mm. I would guess part of it was that there was a whole glut of Iraq War-inspired films that came mm. out around that time. This one was actually, I think, a little bit later in the run because there was a whole bunch earlier. And audiences didn't really respond to just about any of them. Mm. Uh, there was also, I think, that immediacy issue, which was that like they didn't really have a lot of, and I'm not talking about this movie, but some of the others, like they didn't have a lot of perspective. Mm. So a lot of them weren't very good. And I, I think this movie may have fallen victim to just that kind of disinterest in that trend. And also it's like, I, I mean, I don't know where people's mindsets were because I think unfortunately neither us, none of the three of us are Americans. But were people starting to sort of not want to be involved with the war in Iraq at that point? Were they pulling away from it? So why would I want to watch more media that almost supports mm. it in a way? Mm. Yeah, I think by that point, the tide had pretty much turned. In 2008, I, I would have thought so, yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And um, this landed number 55 at the worldwide box office between Step Brothers and Saw 5. Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Very similar films there. <laughs> uh, well, hang on. Quick question. What uh, uh, Top bunk or bottom bunk, if you're taking bunk beds, where are you guys going? What are you taking? We're talking Step Brothers here. Uh, yeah, not Saw 5. No, <laughs> you no, don't no. want to get in that bed. No, no, no. Um, Stay away from that bed. I'm trying to think about what I traditionally do. I think I'm usually top bunk. Although when we were kids, my sister would always take the top bunk. So I can see that happening. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually, I think I always wanted the top bunk, but yeah. I'm, I, I'm a bottom bunk kind of guy. I like the ease of access. Just You're on the floor. You can get out of the room real quick. You, you guys have to deal with a ladder. It's just awkward. Yeah. I can run real quick. It's true. It's just having a view, I think. Having a view. <laughs> it's cozy being inside the bunk bed. Like it's, it's like a little, like it hugs you. But mm, uh, mm. Mm. Well, that was a diversion. Please continue, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> And so the top three for the year, number one was The Dark Knight. Number two was Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. Oof. And number three was Kung Fu Panda. Also notably, number seven was Quantum of Solace. Mm. Okay, so yeah. not quite on the par of Quantum of Solace. Definitely a few spots down. But still top 50-ish, just about. So it's doing, it's doing okay, but obviously didn't make much money. Yeah, mm. and also like when you compare it next to, say, Saw 5. Saw 5 was made for nothing. Mm. and so was like hugely profitable whereas this movie mm. cost a chunk of money plus all the marketing money and all that mm. yeah that's fair I, I i can't say much to the sore franchise i think i've seen the first one that's about it mm -hmm. interestingly there was an interview i was listening to with david ignatius about this um and warner brothers when they commissioned it expected that it probably would make a loss and they still went ahead wow because they yeah. really believed in the story um, and I think that's incredibly rare now. Yeah, that seems almost, um, almost alien, unheard of yeah. now. Yeah, but in the um, back in, I don't know, back in the day, I'll put it that way. Um, occasionally, studios or studio executives, if they really believed in something, they would commission it just purely for the sake of getting this thing made. Because in the end, 
with all the other films they make that year, it would kind of balance out on the books. Mm. But nowadays, I don't think we have that kind of... Uh, I don't know. I don't think you get executives so connected with stories these days as you used to. Um, but yeah. I wonder if it's also when you have this cast and crew together, mm -hmm. there's at mm -hmm. least this kind of hope in the back of their minds that they have a potential Oscar film, mm. which even if it's not successful, you know, like major box office hit, you get to at least have it up on the wall as like best yeah. director winner or something or best picture mm -hmm. nominee. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was not the case. It got, you know, no nominations yeah. for anything. No, no. Uh, the only other real note I had about kind of that post-release was uh, actress Gol Shifte for Farahani um, was actually banned uh, from traveling by her home country of Iran for appearing partly unveiled in the film. And she would later basically move to France and she posed nude in a magazine and was banned from Iran forevermore. Good for her. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Take the power back. Mm. I like that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's, uh, let's examine this body of lies. Let's take a look at it. Chris, you've you've ventured back onto the show. God knows why you've come back, but <laughs> oh, I'm just enjoying it. Enjoying you're it. here. You're here. <laughs> what do you think of uh, your seventh watch of Body of Lies? <laughs> well, um, well, I say what my initial thoughts are. I appreciate a Hollywood spy film that kind of goes to great efforts to research and include kind of real life references to aid the story. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Body of Lies is quite a rare beast in it being an action thriller that actually looks at Al-Qaeda and uses it as a backdrop to a fictional story. Other films that deal with Al-Qaeda tend to be based on facts, so like Zero Dark Thirty, yep. 13 Hours, 12 Strong, just to name a few. Um, despite the film taking a lot of dramatic license, it does make an effort to get the basics of tradecraft and the life of a case officer operating abroad right, which to me makes it much more interesting in the film genre if you compare it to other espionage films of that period and even more recently. So I think those are, that's sort of what it is that sort of draws me to this film. Is it a perfect film? No. Should it won an Oscar? I don't think so. It's not really an Oscar-winning film. It's my kind of popcorn film. Mm -hmm. And I think if I was ever... If anybody ever gave me the keys to the Bond franchise, I'd definitely want to be more in this direction mm. um, than way Daniel Craig's Bond era went. Because I think, for me, like with... Sorry, going a bit of a tangent, but like the Daniel Craig films, with Casino Royale, there was a lot of promise to make kind of more gritty, more real-feeling Bond films. And I feel after... Um, after Quantum of Solace, it kind of just, they went away from that and never came back to that again. And that was a real shame because I felt like, um, I don't know, Al-Qaeda was a real threat. Um, the War on Terror is a real thing. And a lot of spy movies didn't want to deal with it. And they were much more interested in dealing with the idea that maybe the CIA is the ultimate evil and so on, which I always felt was a bit of a cop-out. So, so I appreciate this film for that, really. It's interesting, though, that, you know, this comes out the exact same year as Quantum of Solace. Mm, mm. Like, there is that kind of similar energy in the air, and mm. there is a bit of a post-born, I think, uh, influence going on with both mm. films. Well, it's kind of littered through this whole decade, the, these sort of semi-serious to serious thrillers that are based on war or the real side of espionage. I mentioned The Recruit earlier, but off the top of my head, I can't mm. think of any, but there are quite a few. Zero Dark Thirty is, I think, 2012, but still, there's a lot of them around this time. So it, it feels like mm. it was definitely in the water. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, Cam, what did you think? I find this movie frustrating, Scott, mm. in that 
There's so much to like about it. This movie looks like a million bucks and more. $70 million, I guess. Sure. <laughs> um, you have actors who are watchable no matter what they do. You know, you put yep. Russell Crowe and DiCaprio in any movie. It can be the most boring concept I could ever imagine. And I'm like, well, it was watchable because they were there. Condor Man. And <laughs> no, no, that's <laughs> the, the remake, most exciting. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Wait, who's Condor Man out of the two of them? Oh, who is Condor Man? I, I think it's DiCaprio. Yeah. I think I think Russell Crowe's playing his like best mate who actually works yeah. for the spy agency. Yeah. Yeah. That lines up actually a little too closely. The people listening to this that have never seen Condor Man are so lost right now. We're sorry, folks. Go watch Condor Man. Anyway. Yeah. So it's like in terms of what they are setting up, I, I'm, I'm definitely into it. And there's a number of sequences that just have that Ridley Scott mastery to them that mm -hmm. in isolation really work. I find this movie, though, I kind of feel like it doesn't really know what it wants to do. Like, I think it wants to make statements about, you know, the Iraq war and U.S. involvement in Iraq and the Middle East. And you have a lot of very serious back and forth. You have this kind of exposure to how human beings are treated. But there's like a weird gloss to this movie with mm -hmm. the romantic subplot and the way that's dealt with that. I suddenly feel like I am mm -hmm. very much watching Hollywood spy thriller, but mm -hmm. like trying to also kind of walk this line between we are doing something profound we are making statements that you can't get elsewhere look at how russell crowe's character is making these life and death decisions just on a whim while he's out you know with his kids and what dicaprio is going through in the field but at the same time i have like the love interest stuff i have dicaprio getting captured and escaping in very unlikely circumstances it feels like this weird mix of kind of of the moment social commentary and pulp and to me the two just kind of are fighting the whole time and it, it affects like even like the pace for me where i just feel like it kind of is starting and stalling uh over the course of the movie i can't find fault in anything you said there cam because i think my spiel is basically the same it, i really felt that exact problem i'll probably just jump into mine and sort of reflect on them both because they are kind of similar i i just said this was you know i, I said i was in two minds about this film that was my top line on one hand, you've got this sort of tight, densely plotted thriller. And, uh, you know, the unfortunate realities of espionage, disillusionment of operatives in the field, sort of disinhibition of, op of like, the people up in the offices watching it over, the cold calculations that they have, that life and death happens on a whim. All very heady stuff. And you think, oh, this is really good, meaty things to tackle. But at the same time, you've got this, like, love story that just it feels completely out of place. It feels like it's ham-fisted into the film. And it's trying to do all this deep introspective work. And you look at like Zero Dark Thirty, a film that came afterwards, and it shouldn't be used as a sort of a, something to compare it to. But that deals with torture. Yeah. I think, I think very well. This film starts off with a guy getting tortured. And there's even like flashbacks to it as DiCaprio is kind of getting visions of seeing that guy tortured. But at no point does it ever actually deal with the repercussions of torture. Mm. Whereas Zero Dark Thirty actually has, you see Jessica Chastain have to deal with it and kind of learn to live with it in a way and, and, and actually take a look at the subject. This just feels like a, a popcorn action flick with a, it's it's in disguise. It is a spy itself pretending to be this heady spy film, but really it is just a, a Ridley Scott action film. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, I, I, in my dislikes 
section of my little notes here, I put, I do feel depth has been sacrificed for pace. Mm. And I think that's the issue um, with this film. As much as I enjoy it, there's just, um, there's a lot of things it sets up that it never really explores. And I actually wonder if it actually would have made a better miniseries um, yeah. than a movie. Um, and just to your point about Aisha being shooed horned in, she actually was. She wasn't in the book, from what I understand. Really? Um, yeah, so her character was there. Um, so she was there to kind of represent Ferris's um, love of the culture that he could never be a part of. And, mm. um, and, I, and that kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the problem is, again, she's a nice little five minutes or whatever in the film. And I do love that scene where she, um, uh, you know, where they're having the family dinner. It's great. But it's like, that's kind of it. And it, and, it, and she just feels like a, an element of the plot and nothing more. And it's real, real shame because she's really interesting. And she gets shuffled off into the film anyway. You don't even get any yeah. resolution with it. You know, she's no. fine, but like she doesn't visit him in the hospital or anything like no, that. It's like, no. It's just sort of shrugged off because it's not actually important. It's just a, a plot element they needed. Mm. Mm. And there's like a toughness to kind of, I think, what the movie in, on one hand is trying to do. Where you have like, for example, the Oscar Isaac character is like blown mm. up yep. in an attack. And DiCaprio's in the hospital and they're like pulling bone fragments out of him yeah. from Oscar mm. Isaac. There is a horror to that that I don't know that I've ever seen that in a movie before or something mm. like that happens. And I'm like, that is like visceral. It's unsettling, and it is totally at odds with what the movie's like doing later on, where it's like DiCaprio's captured. He's getting, you know, the speech from the terrorist leader and tortured, and then like escaping under unlikely circumstances. And it's just like these two things feel like they don't quite mesh together mm -hmm. well. That's where I I'm so torn because it's not a movie. It's it's sometimes more fun to come in and be like, I hated this movie. Here's my list as to why. Yeah. It's one where I just find myself frustrated, even yeah. though there's like sections of it that I really enjoy. You, you mentioned mm. the Oscar Isaac thing there, and uh, just a funny little coincidence I noticed. In the next four years, Oscar Isaacs will again appear at the beginning of a spy movie and get blown up. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. The Bourne Legacy. Yeah, he, that's that's where he started, I guess. Being, I wonder if there's any more spy movies we've yet to encounter where Oscar Isaacs gets blown to smithereens. Maybe it was in his contract for a while that that's what has to happen. Maybe. Yeah, only only green M&Ms and you have to blow me up in the first 10 minutes. Yeah, was it was it your interview with um Roger Donaldson about the woman getting killed by from some object going through a windscreen? Yeah, yeah. reminds me of that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And yeah. Oscar Isaac um was it 2 years later was in Robin Hood where he played mm. um uh, not the sheriff, the uh, prince, Prince John, mm. and um, was I didn't care for Robin Hood. I thought it was actually kind of a dud, but he was amazing in that movie, and had the big uh, iconic "I proclaim the outlaw" the line that got played <laughs> and memed to death at that point in time. And I really think like Ridley Scott has a pretty big hand in helping launch Oscar Isaac to become the star that we all love now. I mean, when the ICBM hit him at the end of the film, it was a bit much, though. <laughs> <laughs> not the, that's not the Robin Hood myth I remember. Oh, oh, whoopsie. <laughs> See? He's getting his no time to die territory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's let's mosey on over because we, we're, we're kind of leaning on the bad a little bit. Let's talk about things that we mm. did like because we like to celebrate films because making a film is mm. damn hard, even the bad ones. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. Things that we like. Chris, I'll throw to you first. Give us something you liked. Well, um, I do. So I'm really intrigued by the dynamic between Russell Crowe and um, 
Leonardo DiCaprio. So Roger, so in my notes, I put um, Roger Ferris. You know, he's obviously the case officer on the ground, and he he understands the language, he understands the customs and the culture, and um, and he sees the kind of uh, consequences of what's going on. Whilst Russell Crowe's character being the boss in HQ, he's sort of all cut off from everything, and he's sort of more seeing it as a chess piece. And what was quite interesting, um, I did an interview recently in my podcast, and Russell Crowe's character reflects something known as the September the 12th attitude. So what that was, when 9-11 happened, the day afterwards, September the 12th, the CIA kind of had this sort of... Um, kind of unwritten policy that every day from now on in the war on terror is September the 12th and we've got to treat it that way mm. and so I feel like Russell Crowe really captures that obviously the film doesn't make a big deal of that but when you read into it a bit more it's like oh okay that's really interesting because Russell Crowe is equally as committed to I suppose the the mission as DiCaprio is but they just have a very different way of doing it um, and DiCaprio is obviously more the archetypal case officer on the ground or the way you would hope they would be and Russell Crowe is the sort of opposite this sort of more slightly arrogant um machiavellian kind of character but they those dynamics do exist within cia culture from what i understand um and also i love mark strong's character as the head of the jordanian intelligence services and how then he and russell crowe kind of like the angel and devil on ferris's shoulder at different points in the story um and the other thing i really love i mean it really the film does make an effort to kind of go into sort of spy craft and so you see ferris cultivating local assets so we had uh Bassan played by oscar isaac mm-hmm. i actually really like that opening was it 10 minutes or whatever with him you kind of get a real sense of how cia officers work with a local operative and how they kind of use them get them to sort of find more people and so on so all that sort of stuff was really great and i love that kind of stuff um and it's sort of missing from a lot of spy movies so those those are the kind of things i really love but i'll, I'll hand it back over to you because otherwise I'll, I'll go on for hours but <laughs> well i had a note that um dicaprio's character's um history with partners is about as good as dirty harry's by the end of this movie <laughs> <laughs> okay. and like it and with the Russell Crowe DiCaprio relationship, it's one of the big strengths for me and one of the big selling points. And I like that the Russell Crowe character comes across as just so ineffectual. Every time you see him, you know, he's just kind of overweight, kind of, you know, just paunchy around the house, mm-hmm. just doing chores with the earpiece perpetually in his ear and he's just talking. <laughs> um and yet, like, he's the character who often does, like, the deadliest things where, you know, he goes and has basically that um, asset they're working with, tries mm-hmm. to grab him and gets him killed. And it's just like, oh, well, whatever. Whereas, like, the um, many people would look at the Mark Strong character as being maybe the more intimidating one, mm-hmm. but is the one who has much more of an honor code and is willing to be more loyal as long as you are loyal to him. Mm-hmm. And Russell Crowe, I love him in this movie. Absolutely love him. But I have a question. Is this a good performance? Because I'm not sure. There is a yeah. lot of a lot of this performance is really playing up those glasses. A lot of looking <laughs> over the top of those glasses. You could make a drinking game out of how many times Russell Crowe goes to the look mm. over the top of the glasses well. And yet, like, I love his work in this movie. Like, to me, it's actually more of a draw for me watching it than what DiCaprio's doing. Well, I, I wrote down, it's one of my likes, and I'll just sort of, because I guess it connects is I think both of the two leads really disappear into their role. Like I, I think they both give quite good performances. They may not either of them particularly stick with me, and I may not be rooting for either of them because neither of them are particularly nice people. But mm. I think they really do both blend in well to that world and feel like they are fully fleshed out characters. So I, I would tip my hat to Russell Crowe. I think he did a good job with it. Yeah, yeah. There's just that 
mundane nature of someone who is making just life and death decisions every day and you just wonder what the mindset of that character is like i actually think mm -hmm. about what that character is just day to day is how does he divorce himself from the actions we see of this loving father mm. with what he's actually doing there's like a psychological complexity to that individual that i just find fascinating like i would watch a whole movie about this character there's such a huge disconnect in his life like what he's doing compared to what he's actually living and experiencing mm. but mm. I, I i imagine and you know Chris, you've interviewed you know, real spies and people like that on your show. You've actually dealt with real people that have worked in espionage, unlike us who deal with films. And But like, you have to have a sense of compartmentalization. You cannot wear these things you know, close to your heart because you, I think you'll just your heart will blacken very quickly with some of the things you have to do. So mm. I, maybe that is the right choice. Maybe he is embodying what a good spy master should be. Yeah, I think when it comes to recruiting people to... Uh, be a case officer who does go out and uh, recruit assets and stuff i think they are looking for people who are able to kind of leave it behind mm. um and there's one guy I, I interviewed years ago called frank snap who was the who was a cia officer based in vietnam and recruited all sorts of assets and um and when the americans pulled out of vietnam he wanted to kind of set up a rescue mission to get some of the assets out of there and the cia management said no and eventually mm. he became a whistleblower just trying in anything he could to try and help get those people out. Mm. Um, and it cost him, you know, his freedom, his career. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is, I think there is a certain side where you have to be able to just sort of shrug your shoulders and um, and be able to let somebody go to their fate. In fact, there was one guy interviewed where in his book, I don't think we mentioned it in the show, but he certainly um, talked about somebody he recruited in Iraq and uh, and that person came to a, an unfortunate fate and he kind of, in a way, sort of shrugged it off and it was like that was, you know, the price of business. Um, and I know that's why I'd be a really crap case officer because I couldn't do that kind of thing. I, I, I like, when I get to like people, I really like them. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> and I find it very hard to uh, to sort of uh, get in the chopper and say goodbye. You know? uh, I don't know. I could probably send Cam off for some work. <laughs> in my Condor one, Man one... suit. <laughs> <laughs> one quick shout out though. Um, Russell Crowe in the opening of his son um, helping him on the toilet whilst on the phone talking about some mm. this sort of CIA stuff is is both hilarious and a bit sort of like, oh my God, that's quite gross. But I don't know, there's something great about that scene. It's so funny in some ways. If that was in like Burn After Reading, that scene, it would yeah. make complete yeah. sense. Yeah, it's just completely out there. Mm. And I mean, on the press tour for this movie, Russell Crowe was like, it's not going to be successful. Like, oh. he he was pretty upfront. He's like, I never really thought this movie was going to be a hit and or don't think it's going to be a hit. But mm. I don't even regard that as part of my decision making process for when I pick my roles. No, should you? So he clearly. Yeah, exactly. So you can't predict what an audience will respond to. Although apparently Russell Crowe knew that audiences wouldn't respond to this, but nonetheless was like, this is a character I want to play. Well, I, th I think the reason why it's not very successful other than maybe the marketing is just... um. It's just darker than what a lot of people expect a spy film to be. And I mm. think this is where my issue with spy films comes in sometimes. It's like when you mention spy films, a lot of people just want very surface sort of shoot out almost borderline superhero stuff. Yep. And then you 
give them this and it's sort of a it's trying to be a bit of a coder on the war on terror and trying to be a shoot 'em up uh action film at the same time hence why it's conflicted mm. um and I, that's why i think it don't i don't think it did very well because it wasn't quite deep enough for some people and it was too deep for other people and it uh, and that's that it was trying to please everybody and pleasing nobody i wonder if they were from the point of view of the studio hoping that this would be like blood diamond mm. which is kind of that political action film that again that one had a lot of oscar attention attached to it it made a lot of money i think i think i even read dicaprio citing that movie as part of his decision for signing on to do body of lies was kind of hoping mm. to kind of replicate that success yeah, again yeah. and yeah it clearly just didn't work financially for them but it wouldn't surprise me if that was a movie they were looking at as a model mm. no yeah, no it wouldn't, surprise, wouldn't me. surprise me uh cam did you give a like in that section um well i mean I played off of just hit, you know mm. um, Chris talking about Russell Crowe because to me that was like my big love of the movie was the <laughs> Russell Crowe performance. Yeah. Um, but Ridley Scott's filmmaking, I mean, you can look at Ridley Scott's worst movie and there's going to be unbelievably beautiful moments mm. just because he's mm. so incredible as a visual stylist. And we have seen a lot of you know action scenes in spy movies we've seen a lot of kind of desert set action in war movies and spy films as well quantum and i look at like quantum yeah i look at like the car chases in this movie the shootouts they have like there's the whole act they put on of the um, our car broke down and they go to that little you know hut that they mm. think maybe a terrorist uh cell there and it turns into a shootout and it's so visceral, and Ridley Scott, as I said, referred to this movie as a doddle. To him, it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. another <laughs> shootout, no problem. But he could be, you know, self-effacing all he wants. He makes action that's incredibly visceral and memorable, and when you're watching it, you are gripped. You know, Black Hawk Down is one of my favorite Ridley Scott movies, and that's mm -hmm. like two hours straight of that kind of, you know, high-intensity action. But every time he brings that to this movie, I don't know how inspired he felt personally, but... It really plays on screen very well. No, I, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. It's actually one of my likes as well. I think it. It's. It's. It actually adds to the reason why you said it was frustrating. I think that is the key word in in my take on this too, because I can't fault everything that's on the screen. Yeah. There's every every moment feels worked to to a good level, and clearly it is a great filmmaker in his element and not having to break a sweat. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, mm, um mm. I you guys have kind of covered most of my likes. I've got a kind a couple of little ones. Firstly, I love that this film starts off with someone whistling Rule Britannia. <laughs> That's your favorite thing in movies. It, f spy films have to start with Rule Britannia. It seems to be like a a going thread on these films we've been tackling recently. I don't know why. I remember that. For... <laughs> uh, Is that like a very American decision? I think so. I don't walk around whistling Rule Britannia, Chris, do you? No, no, no. Ridley Scott is British, yeah. so I mean, you know, it's an American film, but it's mm. Ridley Scott is directing it. But we see that in so many American films. I mean, it's it's a milkman doing it too, and milkmen are meant to be going around at like four in the morning, five in the morning. I, <laughs> he shouldn't be whistling because you'll be waking people up, and yeah. no one's happy at that time in the morning. Cam, you work early graveyard shifts like that, and I don't think you're whistling your way into work. Yeah, no, I work at five a.m. every morning, so I am not exactly full of joy. Uh, at 4.30 when I'm walking to work. When you leave, different. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's different. <laughs> then you're whistling Rural Britannia. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I live in British Columbia, so I'm really uh... just celebrating the British part of my hometown. 
Um, I also just wrote down, I like that this film doesn't sort of fetishize the intelligence services particularly. Like it, it is kind of warts and all. There are The villains are basically inside the intelligence services as well as the terrorist factions. There's, they're all villains, basically. And it doesn't really try to give you like this, you know, rah-rah America angle that some of these films of this era definitely took towards military action. Yeah, and even the DiCaprio character, who's, I guess, our most sympathetic character, mm. because he's the one who's being jerked around by all of these higher powers, you have the entire creation of that Brothers of Awareness yeah. group that he is behind, this kind of like false terrorist group to kind of draw out the main leader. And I mean, you see the human cost of that. And there's a scene where he like takes over control of kind of the office and fires the guy who was there previously. And... DiCaprio does not come off as a particularly nice guy either. Like, he is more than willing to sacrifice a lot. He just has a different line than, say, Russell Crowe would or Mark Strong would. No, and I, I will note, he talks about his his wife that left him and they're getting a divorce. They actually did film scenes with the wife, with uh, Spy Hard's favorite, Carice Van Houten, as the wife, mm. and completely cut all the scenes. Also, we had Michael Stuhlbarg um, mm. as the lawyer calling in for one, like, Eight second shot. Of course, we had to mention Men in Black Three. Well done, Cam. Well, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I'm sure we've seen him in other things, but yes, yeah, unfortunately. But yeah, nice little bit of a uh, connective tissue there. But uh, any, any other likes before I move us on? The Mark Strong one is so like you would not cast Mark Strong in that role these days, no, right? No. Playing this Jordanian um, intelligence operative, and I mean. He's so damn good in the movie. For sure. And I remember a lot of the reviews at the time, that was who got mentioned. They really didn't celebrate DiCaprio or Russell Crowe. Mark Strong was the one getting shouted out constantly. Mm. And he's gone on to become, you know, one of those great character actors we see in so many things. But it is such like a silky menace going through that character in this movie that it's tough. Because I know like Ridley Scott has had his issues as well with uh, casting, you know, Caucasian actors in roles that would be better suited to people who actually are the same race as the characters they're playing. I remember there was a real controversy with Exodus Gods and Kings, which was, I guess, two years later, mm. um, where when they cast, like, you know, Christian Bale as Moses and various others, like, Ridley Scott made a very kind of offhanded, crude comment about, like, well, I don't want to hire, like, Muhammad so and so for the lead of this movie, mm. which, uh, you know, as we've said, Ridley Scott is, um, not exactly the young generation. And <laughs> that kind of like decision-making is probably informing the hiring of Mark Strong. But mm. I will say like Mark Strong is magnetic in this movie. So it's kind of one of those like, mm -hmm. it's a strength, but you also kind of have to acknowledge the, uh, the probably not the greatest of ideas. No, I think he's like from Italian descent and he was born in London. So he's not exactly... Yeah, yeah, North London. <laughs> yeah, he's not, he's not Jordanian in any stretch of the imagination as far as I can pull up. But no, no I, I can see that being an issue. But you're right. Every time he turns up, it, there is a, a magnetism to him. He's like the James Bond of the Jordanian intelligence services. He's suave mm. as, uh, mm. as F. Yeah. Mm. And his character is inspired by um, the real head of a Jordanian, Jordanian intelligence at the time, because David Ignatius actually visited the Jordanian intelligence services and hung out with the with the head of Jordanian intelligence for some time. So, uh, yeah, his character is sort of inspired by truth. There. Well, it feels like very in, like an informed take on this character because mm -hmm. we've seen 
between the three of us, how many times have we seen a spy movie where it's just kind of like a very stock intelligence operative character coming in? And everything about the Mark Strong character feels very specific about what they want to get across. Mm. And in many ways, he feels more developed as a character than like, or at least more multidimensional than DiCaprio's character. Mm. Or Russell Crowe. Mm. Yeah. But that's the challenge of being a spy. You've got to be a bit of a chameleon. Mm. And I think that's that's probably the difficulty of portraying them on screen is they, you know, he has to be a bit of everything to everybody. Yeah. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? We are wrapping up a month, so it's time for the latest edition of The Debrief, the May edition, where we're going to tackle Dead Reckoning, Bond, and all the other big spy news that has made our world that much more exciting. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, I feel like we're drifting into dislike territory. We've got to start pulling out those bone <laughs> fragments now. Oh, no. Chris, you're up. Something you disliked. Well, yeah, the pacing. Uh, when I rewatched it just the other day, I was just I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I think we kind of have put our finger on it now. But the pacing's off, um, and uh, again, the Aisha character, as much as I like her and like the scenes involving her, she still just doesn't feel developed enough, and just feels a bit superfluous to to the plot, really. I, I understand wanting her in there to give Leo something to do in that sense, like an extra, uh, you know layer to his onion as it were but mm-hmm. it just i feel bad for i don't feel bad for the actor in a sense but i i feel like it's it's not economical storytelling it actually is wasting time having that scene of them out together having tea and and i love that dinner scene like you mentioned that chris as well the dinner mm-hmm. table scene with the family i think that's some good like a little, little look into sort of what's going on in dicaprio's head having to defend the u.s position during the war mm. but that could have been done in many other ways. He could have gone out to dinner with the Jordanian leader and like someone else could have questioned him. His date could have questioned him. And that could have been far more on topic than having this whole love affair that isn't wrapped mm. up and is discarded to one side. And their relationship, I like that there are certain elements of it that are interesting. Like, you know, the family dinner and having the, uh, the sister, mm. much more of the dominant personality and in interrogating DiCaprio. Um, I like the moment where they're saying goodbye after the dinner and he goes to like take her hand or whatever. And there's the people looking down and watching. Yeah. Like you get that sense of that kind of cultural pressure she'd be under. Mm -hmm. So there's like some specifics there that I like, but what do these two talk about? You know, like they go out on that date where they go to like the refugee camp. There's barely any dialogue. He gets thrown into the back of an SUV at the end of the date and like driven (laughs) away. And I'm like, there... I just think a, a movie that cared about this character, her her character, and I don't think there's anything against the performance. I think um, Farhani's actually pretty mm. good in the movie. Mm. Um, but 
I would just like to know about them as people. And I don't have a good sense as to who she is. I know her job. Mm. I know her mm. family dynamics. Mm. But mm. I don't know emotionally where she's coming from or anything like that. It, it's like he's infatuated with her immediately, which is completely fair enough. Love at first sight is a real thing. You do fall for people when you meet them. But I feel like if they were going to go this route, you could have really gone down that sort of like a nightingale route where he falls with her for the medical treatment, just spending time with her and breaks down a wall and then a, a spark happens and it goes from there. I mean, I'm not a screenwriter, but and you can tell. But I just feel like it, they, <laughs> they just made it come out of nowhere and then just discarded it, like I said. And that that's more mm. the shame. Like you spent time building it up, maybe not very well, but you spent time doing it and then and then... She's used as the MacGuffin to drive the male character at the end of the film, which is always a contrived thing that the films love doing. And 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 you don't even get a payoff for it. No, no. One thing I would say, um, I think they handled the... Considering relationships between men and women in certain parts of the Middle East can be considered controversial. Sure. Um, I think they handled the sort of romance quite respectfully. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. it. And it and um and you know you didn't have Leonardo DiCaprio taking her as a prize at the end, which is what a lot of women are reduced to in movies, especially spy movies. Um and so that and actually ironically, Quantum of Solace also had a similar kind of thing as well, where James Bond didn't sleep with the lead Bond woman in that film, and that seemed to upset a lot of Bond fans. Um so that that was a positive on 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 that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> It also didn't like play into North American expectations. There was no big kiss moment. Mm. There was no, you know, <laughs> steamy love scene or anything like that. Like they kept it very respectful to how she would be within her culture. Mm. And he's not pushing it any harder than that. Like he's he's letting it yeah. kind of grow naturally in a way. Yeah. Mm. He's being respectful. But I just like scratch my head. He's like showing up like covered in scars and stuff and she's like, <laughs> "Yep." <laughs> Sure. Hey, it's what no she's into. It's what she's into, man. You can't judge that. It's true. Uh, can't judge that. It's true. Cam, what about you? What I dislike? Um, for me, I think it, I'm gonna just talk about the pace. That yeah. And yeah. yeah, because to me, I talked with my likes. You know, like the the Ridley Scott action sequences are really visceral. That dog sequence, which I didn't mention, incredible. When you've got the yeah. two dogs pulling on his legs and whatever, I'm like. <laughs> I don't see this too often in movies, and it's done incredibly well here. Mm-hmm. But, like, this movie feels like these little islands where they, like, have these, like, sequences, action sequences, you know, in the, that case. But also even, like, when he's setting up the Brotherhood um, group or the Brothers of Awareness group with that tech dude with the birds. I'm like, this is a little world unto itself that's really interesting. But it feels like these islands that just don't connect in a way where it flows mm. from beginning to end. And I was reminded of... um. Zero Dark Thirty, a movie that Scott and you and I were big fans of, where you have like some pretty high intensity sequences, but because of the like procedural nature of that movie, it really flows beginning to end. And it's not a short movie. It's longer than this one. Mm-hmm. This one, it just felt chunky, where you'd get like, this happens. Okay, now we have to take a pause while we have exposition or setting up what the next thing is. Then that happens. And by the end of the two hours, I just felt like I hadn't been carried through the movie so much as like kind of lurching to and from moments that were, you know, interesting or memorable, um, but just didn't have a real flow to them. See, the problem I have with, with the plot in that sense and sort of the, the, not the plot, but the pacing of the plot is 
because I don't find myself invested in any of the characters, and I, I feel like I'm being put a distance from them. It almost feels like it's like a docudrama. I'm just sort of watching it passively from the side. I'm not invested in any of the leads. It doesn't help the plot, and it doesn't help that the plot is also it doesn't help the pace. It doesn't help the plot itself is also very dense. Like you have to pay attention throughout because there's a lot of twists and turns, double crosses, triple crosses throughout the whole film. If you're not invested and engaged for those two hours. It will feel even worse and because it is so dense it it just like works against you and you're like actively mm. pushed away from the film at least i felt that way well i had a question for you scott you watch these movies famously back to back famously and <laughs> famously and i know you know chris you've seen this movie several times over the years yeah. but i'm curious yeah. you know watching it twice in close succession mm. what was that experience like i had trouble the second time around i often do with the films i don't particularly enjoy I spent a lot of time trying to pay more attention to like the direction in the second time. Like I wasn't really paying attention to plot because I felt like I got it the first time round, but I wasn't getting anything from paying attention to like the acting or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But it, it it wasn't an experience that improved it the second time round. There's been there's been ex examples in the past where I've watched it the second time and actually been completely won over. Like I, my expectations right. have melted away and I've gone at it and met it at its own energy. But this film actively frustrated me both times. I feel like the pace just bogs you down i think at one point on the second viewing i stopped because i forgot where i was and i went to get a cup of tea i was like oh my god it's like still an hour and a half left i thought i'd been watching it for two hours at that point it really like just doesn't click for me like that but it is actually a segmented film there's about like three mm. there's about three sections of it because there's like different missions that he goes on more or less mm, and then yeah. they capture at the end and, and maybe that's a way of navigating it but yeah i i don't think the second viewing helped me at all i think Part of the issue for me is that you have this series of missions, and I think it should feel like they're building, like you're getting closer mm. and closer to the Al Salim character. Mm -hmm. But I don't really feel that. Like when I'm watching Zero Dark Thirty, I really get the sense of how they're getting closer and closer and closer. And obviously, that movie has the benefit of being based on factual events mm -hmm. so they can connect the dots a little tighter. But um, at the same time, I guess they also have to like take years of work and turn it into a two and a half hour movie so they had to challenge themselves to actually pull that off um whereas like this one i don't feel like each mission kind of builds on the previous one in a way where they really feel like it's a progression mm. Mm. and um one quick point i was gonna throw in actually not enough al salim i would like a bit more of him um yeah he just he's just sort of ends up uh becoming sort of generic uh bad guy really um because there's not enough of him they're trying to keep him mysterious i kind of get that but i feel like i need with a film like that you kind of need more of him um and maybe he becomes more of a threat because he doesn't really feel like a threat really but no i we don't really know anything about him mm. they're like well he's you know um someone that is going to declare war uh and it is you know obviously having these terrorist acts in europe and mm. is going to potentially attack the u.s but I don't know that much about him. He feels like kind of just a fill-in for what a lot of the anxieties were at this point in time. Well, I, again, I think you both have sort of tackled my dislikes as much as you did with my likes. So I'll, I'll just throw in a couple of little notes I had left over. I think I mentioned the sort of climax feels very sort of not unrealistic. I imagine that can happen, but like it's all just very convoluted, contrived stuff. We're like, oh, they steal the girl and he has to go rescue her. Da, 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 da. Straight out of a James Bond film, which is nowhere near the sort of heady storytelling they were trying to do at the beginning of the film. It's all just very boilerplate stuff for Hollywood. I 
found you mentioned El Salim just completely one dimensional. We needed more yeah. to hear more about that and actually maybe I'm not saying get behind any sort of cause, but just understand his perspective. Mm. If you're going to invest in getting an actor in and actually name them and give them screen time, give them a reason to do what they're doing. But he just gets the sort of you know the the, the classic video thing and then the torture at the end. Although I will say gnarly seeing uh, DiCaprio's finger get hammered off. Yeah. <laughs> Some uh, great practical effects going on in this movie. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it was competing with Saw, wasn't it? So it was on par with Saw. That's that right. <laughs> <laughs> you could have a double feature back in those days, 2008. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that, that really does sort of wrap me up for dislikes i feel like i've had more but they, they are really the two big ones of like the pacing and 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 the the sort of the love story i will say with the love story there is a little bit of subversion going on that you know the uh, al salim character was not behind her kidnapping that it was actually mark strong's manipulations mm -hmm. so like at the very very least they made that story a little bit you know outside the box but it's mm. still like the treatment of her character isn't very good. No, no, I think it just doesn't. It doesn't. It it wants to be, and we mentioned this earlier. It wants to be quite heady, and it wants to tackle these bigger problems and issues. But it it by the end, it doesn't pay any of it off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I think before we get over to Knocklistville, mm. Knockville, Knockville, <laughs> the yellow brick path to Knockville. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm saving that one for future use. That's good. Uh, let's just go through any like final notes we have laying around. Uh, Chris, have you got anything hanging around on your notes? Wow, yeah, I love the guy called Garland. He's the a strawberry eating tech guy, yeah. played by Simon McBurney, who was in Tinker Tailor, and his line is being real. Um, I, I I like I like him. He's just a nice little character who who just um, you know does his little bit to facilitate the plot. But uh, no, he's great. I thought he was phenomenal. Mm. Like this movie has obviously a number of you know, character actors that pop in, you know, Oscar Isaac, you know, rising star here. But like, I was finishing this movie being like, who is Simon McBurney? And why have I not seen him in everything I've ever watched? <laughs> he just creates yeah. this whole little world for this character. And obviously, you know, the set dressing and the birds and all that helps mm. a lot. But mm. what a like fantastic little minor character that feels like he could be featuring into a movie of his own. And I'd watch that. Yeah, I'd watch that. Yeah. Netflix. Yeah, you know. sign it up. It's <laughs> a spin-off we never asked for. The McBurney Chronicles. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would be good. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, Chris, if you want to get on that screenplay, uh, you know, there yeah. you go. Damn right. Snap those, get those rights <laughs> sorted out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, in terms of notes I had left, I, I want to know what phone network uh, Russell Crowe uses because mm. he has the best reception worldwide. Okay. This is introducing a element that we need to talk about, the technology in this movie, okay? Um, not just the phone, but also the satellite images on DiCaprio at all mm, times. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 2008, I don't recall cell phones being that strong. <laughs> I don't recall well, they work for the CIA, don't they? So they got special secure <sighs> phones. If you, yeah, it's true. the only way to explain how they're allowed to even talk on mobile phones to each other the whole time. <laughs> Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, with the satellite technology, the Bourne films were just a few years before this. I don't feel like the satellite technology was as good in those movies, and those are a heightened, yeah. you know, spy <laughs> series versus yeah. like what this is trying to do. Where 
the storytelling is kind of pulpy, but I feel like they're trying to ground the tech and kind of political situations within that specific point in time. I have, I don't know. Do you guys think that the satellite technology was that good at that point? I think for the military it was. I think, think so? we're always about 20 years behind what the military have, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Considering, considering actually, even in the early days of the war on terror, with drone technology and stuff, they were able to get real time images all over the place and stuff. I think, I think, yeah. I mean, yeah. For for us, uh, like my cell phone doesn't even work at my own flat unless I've got it connected to Wi Fi. So <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> so it's it's. Yeah. That's like my parents' place. You have to go stand uh, in right in front of the fireplace if you want a cell phone to work downstairs. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was reading Roger Ebert's review of the film earlier on today, and he mentioned the uh, ex- exceeding accuracy of the satellite imagery. And he said he criticized that in a film a few years before, and it turned out that it was actually based on real life. So he wonders how real this actually might be. It's just it isn't common technology. Yeah. But I, I'm not, I don't know if we were necessarily there at the point where you could zoom in and say, see what kind of uh, baklava uh you know DiCaprio was buying at the market well in the 1990s the police helicopters that they have in the UK have got amazing cameras that can like literally see your face from a crowd at uh you know sort of like 10,000 feet or something so there's some pretty good tech out there mm. it's just not sort of widely available <laughs> and yeah um, and who yeah. are we to sort of critique the, the I mean, it's all it's all movie magic stuff. Like, <laughs> no, definitely. Yeah, is it a Bond? Well, what about? I, I'm more bothered by James Bond's phone camera in Quantum of Solace. That bothers me much more than anything in Body of Lies. You know, when he's taking the photographs, all the the uh, all the Quantum members, not Spectre, for copyright reasons. Yeah. Um, mm. That that bit, and I knew the. I remember the cam- the phone he had because they were very popular, and that had a really awful camera on it. So <laughs> it, obviously, Q had really souped that up for him. But... Why doesn't mine do that? <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Even my iPhone's not that good now. <laughs> Back at headquarters, they're getting those like classic blurry Facebook photos that people yeah. take on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, "Well, oh, uh. yeah." <laughs> this quantum God. is definitely shadowy. We can say that from these photos. <laughs> I mean, we got this deal with Sony Ericsson. We have to use their phones, I guess. You know, yeah. What can you yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, it is. It, it's a funny thing to poke fun at, but. Ultimately, it's like movie magic stuff. It's the old zoom and enhance yeah. from CSI. It's that, that this this is exactly the era where everything was zoom and enhance. Yeah, definitely, definitely. One other random note, sorry, I just forgot to mention it. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio's look was inspired by how real CIA officers on the ground would try and dress themselves, try and blend in. So he grew a beard, he had like clothes on that fit the sort of environment, and he had a like knackered old car and stuff. And funnily enough, the car that he and um, Oscar Isaac driving was actually the car, the same type of car my dad used to have, Um, the Nissan Patrol, which is a very good uh, vehicle for off-roading and stuff like that. So I was uh, reminiscing about sitting in my dad's car, just watching the film. That was a little weird, uh, little emotional moment. Just dodging RPGs as you went along. Yeah, Yeah. that's what we used to do all the time, you know. (laughs) Those RPG-filled roads of London. Yeah, you never know. Indeed. Well, with the potholes here, crikey. I mean, I've got a friend who grew up in the Bosnian War, and apparently the roads were better during the Bosnian War than they are here. Yeah. But, but there we go. I could buy that. I could buy that. I, I actually, spinning off from your note, I just had a very small note that Leonardo DiCaprio should never grow a full beard. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I never knew someone with that much money in Hollywood would have as bad of a beard as I do when it comes to filling out the sides. It just, I don't, I don't get it, nor does he. So I have to trim them, and I think he should do that too. Yeah. It- <laughs> 
not a great look. And I know one of the criticisms I've heard over the years about this movie was a lot of some people really feel DiCaprio was miscast in this movie. How do you guys feel? I suppose I'd want to hear like what the alternate yeah. is. If you told me mm. another name, I'd be like, oh, actually, yes, that makes sense. But I, I think he's fine. I think the character is not written to be someone you're meant to be rooting for because he's doing bad things. He's more like a, yeah. you're more observing the story happening than sort of getting invested in it. Yeah, he's meant to be the comedian. I think he, I, I think DiCaprio does an amazing job on it. Um, there are many other people. I was just thinking in my head, Benicio Del Toro would have been quite interesting, mm. been very different, but uh, probably more menacing. I don't know. Yeah. Um, trying to think, because again, it would have been quite interesting to cast somebody who was more of Middle Eastern heritage mm-hmm. or, or sort of fit in a bit more just to give it a different spin. Um, so yeah, no, there are many other actors. I think DiCaprio did absolutely fine. I think it's just the nature of his character to be a bit like that. Um and certainly David Ignatius um, thought DiCaprio did a good job. And there was an interview I was listening to just yesterday about how um, DiCaprio met with Ignatius at his house and was trying to work out Ferris's walk. And he proposed the walk and Ignatius said, no, 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 no. He would walk probably more like this. And then DiCaprio did something between the two. So, <laughs> Yeah, I don't have any issue with DiCaprio in this movie mm. at all. I, it feels actually... His walk is tremendous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well um, yeah. <laughs> it feels like it makes kind of sense coming off. This is two years after The Departed, where it was also about someone in a deep cover assignment and how that's kind of tearing away at him. It feels like a role that was kind of like a pretty safe transition point for mm. DiCaprio to try something that's a little more challenging, but also uncomfortable terrain. So I, I thought he was fine. Um, a note I had, uh, a very insignificant note, was. The Russell Crowe character talks about flying over to see DiCaprio, you know, in the field, and that he watched the movie Poseidon on the way there. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, that yeah. is a very, like, low-key slam on the movie Poseidon, because it's like, <laughs> that was meant as a major summer blockbuster. <laughs> and the fact that it's been now turned into a, you know, movie you would watch on a very small airline screen, I was <laughs> like... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's about right. They were tempting fate with that comment, weren't they? Because that's what's happened to Body of Lies. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no kidding. They were like, boy, that movie was unsuccessful, right? Right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it, Poseidon, though, you know, having seen Poseidon, that is just like the epitome, the epitome of the airplane movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had um, one final note, and that is about Russell Crowe's accent. Mm. Not, I'm not lambasting his choice. It's more, it just reminded me of a certain Bond character. <laughs> and I'll, I'll read you a line and I'll try my best to do the affectation. Oh boy, I love this. Europe is getting hammered, boy. <laughs> are, are you going for is Sheriff Ted Lasso? G- <laughs> Sheriff J.W. Pepper? <laughs> it was, it was an attempt at J.W. Pepper. Yes, it, it was the boy. Okay. That, yeah, it just, it, it, I heard it and I was like, that's, that's JW, what's going on? Mm-hmm. I'm in the bayou again. I couldn't quite place it, but then I'm, I'm, I don't have it, the best of ears for American regional dialects. I'm sure someone from there would be able to pinpoint it exactly. It sounded kind of like Kentucky-ish or something. Mm-hmm. I, I was a little uns- uncertain, but I enjoy that Russell Crowe was taking the swing. Sure, mm. he was he was taking the swing indeed. But yeah, that that wraps me up. Any other notes before I take us to Knockville? Yeah, 
Um, Kent, do any of you guys know the Jason Bourne connection to this story? And more from the novel than the movies, unless you count the um, the original movie with um, what's his name? Oh, Richard um, Chamberlain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't. Can do you know? I'm racking my brain. I've read plot synopses for the original Bourne book, but um, I don't think Carlos the Jackal popped up in this. So, uh, no. <laughs> so, what was Bourne's mission in the book? He was trying to flesh out. Um, sorry, not flesh out. Uh, draw out Carlos the Jackal, wasn't he, by posing as an assassin? Yeah. So kind of similar to the bomb plot, isn't it? Right. Mm. Yeah. 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 Making up the sort of yeah. fake persona. Yeah. 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 And that. And that. And funnily enough, when I finally learned that about the Bourne story, I thought, why the hell didn't they bring that into the Matt Damon stories? Because that's much more interesting with his character, that he's trying to bring out a real terrorist. Instead, they kind of went with, um, oh no, the CIA are terrorists. That's kind of what they went for with the Bourne films in the end. It was very much of the time, like pointing fingers mm. at, at, at the sort of CIA and stuff. So I, I know why they went that way. I'm surprised they didn't go and visit the Jackal like in Jason Bourne or something in the late ones. Yeah, because what a... I mean, you know, it didn't have to be the Jackal, but what a... You know, going up against an assassin of equal capability mm. is kind of a cool thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> I would say that would have been a far more satisfying uh, story direction for the fourth film than Jason Bourne versus social media. Yeah. <laughs> as long as I didn't go down the Spectre route where it was like the Jackal was your the author of his pain the whole time. Oh, yeah. Oh. Okay, who's playing the Jackal in this scenario, Scott? <laughs> Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz, yeah. <laughs> cuckoo. But I'm the Jackal. <laughs> he's not the Jackal, he's the cuckoo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. There you go. There you go, folks. That's the, the film that never was and probably shouldn't ever be. But uh... Okay, Knockless time. Chris? Famously, you didn't get Spy Game onto the knock list. That's no. all your fault. I'll, yeah, it is. I'll blame you, fault, but yeah. you have a second yeah. chance at this if you want to. Body of Lies, is it making the knock list for you, Chris? Yes or no? In principle, yes, it is. In principle? Uh, it's not a perfect film. It's not a great film, but I appreciate what it's trying to do. And I think if you put it in the spy canon and if you put it as a historical piece, you know, 2008 and where it sits with other films at this time, mm -hmm. I think it deserves a place on the knock list. Mm. Okay. That's a, that's a yes. It could all happen. Cam, <laughs> it's over to you. What do you think? Scott, I need Ridley Scott to make another spy movie stat so I can put a Ridley Scott movie into the knock list. <laughs> yeah. Because it wouldn't be this one no, for me. No. It's like, there's stuff I like about it. Mm. You know, I would, I would like to think that if they made an entire movie just about Russell Crowe's character, that would make the knock list because I would be 100% on board of him looking over glasses for yeah. two and a half hours. But um, Body of Lies, it just, you know, I go back to that frustrating word, which is that it has, there are elements here that could have fueled a movie that I think would have made it. Mm -hmm. And it just didn't quite deliver for me. And one of the issues we had with actually Spy Game was, kind of the the relationship aspect, aspect, the female character that was brought into that. And this one is that even bigger. <laughs> it somehow is uh, more, uh, you know, guilty of dragging down the movie. So it's a, it's a no for Body of Lies for me. Okay, one yes, one no. My decision actually counts for once. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure you're all undecided and unsure where this is going to go right now. I'm sure you're all, you know, doing a drum roll in your head. It's a no. It's a no. I... I'll use Cam's word, frustrating. I think this was trying to be too many things at once. Mm. And it's a shame because on paper, 
this film should be a knockout from cast Ooh, to crew. A knockout, Scott? Oh, a knockout? <laughs> yeah. Making puns, I didn't even know it. I love it. It should have been just looking at the caliber of, of filmmakers and, and actors behind it. But alas, this is where we are. A fascinating film to look at, nonetheless. I think an example of an attempt of what could have been quite great, as Cam said. But no, it's a no from me. One yes, two no's. As such, Body of Lies is not making the knock list. Chris, two fails. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, what the. <laughs> But then um, we'll see what the audience say because I remember with Spy mm. Game there was a bit of a it kicked off something on Twitter. Well, you know, yeah, Spy Hearts definitely. listeners, uh, Spies and Secrets <laughs> listeners, get at us, at us, and tell us what you think. Should it make the knock list or not? We want to hear from you. Uh, I think what to really test like Chris's bad luck now is <laughs> we need to give him like a film that should be a sure thing, like Manchurian Candidate or Spy Who Came In From The Cold, and be like, okay, is this making the knock list? And I think if he has bad luck. That will not make it. Oh, you see, I had the opposite thought. We bring him on for like Cats and Dogs 2, The Revenge of Kitty Galore, and you and I both put it on the knock list and have him yeah. vote no. <laughs> well, we could do The Grey Man if you want. Oh. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you know, time will tell on, on Chris's next visit, but uh, that's the dossier on the film complete and filed as classified. Chris Carr. My friend, thank you once again for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you here on Spy Hards. You are one of my favorites out there in the world, and uh, I'm glad to call you a friend that I've met in real life as well many times. So it's lovely. Well, thank you. It's very kind. It's great to be on, and it's an honor to be called back. Um, and eventually we might agree on a film. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer the discussion. If we were all just like high-fiving yeah, each other, yeah. it would be no, very exactly. boring. I, to be fair, I think we uh, we did agree, but uh, most of it, didn't we? I think so. so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. I think we had a really great chat. <laughs> we recently did an episode on the Russia House, and oh, yes, yes, we, you know, the three people on that episode all came from completely different points of view, and it seemed like the listeners really enjoyed that aspect. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that was a great episode. I was listening to it just yesterday, actually, and uh, yeah, I think the interestingly, this film suffers a bit with what the Russia House did as well. Um, with this sort of trying to be authentic in places and stuff. And it was, yeah, yeah. The Russia House is, uh, yeah, that's a, it's an interesting film. It is a bit, again, the pacing and stuff. And I remember you talk about the romance as well. I think a lot of films suffer from really bad and unnecessary romance plots, don't they? Um, underwritten. and uh, Yeah, underwritten. And they kind of then, you know, and they, so that's what sort of tainted Spy Game a little bit. It certainly tainted this film. Um, and it's a, it's a shame, really. <laughs> Well, it's frustrating because, you know, Scott and I watch, obviously, a lot of older movies, too. And, you know, you often see much better romances, mm. you know, like Notorious yeah. or, you know, mm. things like that. Oh, yeah, Notorious and then you com- Yeah, and then you compare it to when you're watching something like, you know, Body of Lies, and you're like, really? Like, all these decades of, you know, development, of storytelling, and all that sort of thing, and we're doing this? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you guys ever... Sorry, I go off a complete tangent here. Um, have you ever guys watched guys have watched the TV show Danger Man? With no. With Patrick No, I've heard of it. It's well worth a watch just because um, he had an unwritten... Well, he, no, it wasn't an unwritten rule. He had a rule uh, known as the McGowan rule. Basically, he because of his Catholic background and stuff, he refused to have romance plots with the women in the show. Mm, right. And it, led the, it forced the writers to write much more interesting women. And I think Danger Man interestingly stands up better now than some of the early sean connery bond movies 
um, because of this. Right. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we need more Magoon rules in 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 films. Maybe <laughs> it doesn't always have to be a love interest. I know it's like an easy out, but uh, yeah. Well, you know, Chris, again, always a pleasure. But you know, where can people find you online? What's going on on your show at the moment? What have you got coming up? Yeah, well, um, yeah, uh, you can find us at Secrets and Spies, which is on Twitter at Secrets and Spies. We're also on um, Spoutable, which is a new alternative to Twitter, uh, just at Secrets and Spies. We're also on Instagram, guest at Secrets and Spies. Um, so uh, coming up on the podcast, um, gosh, we've got some, we're hoping to get Shane Harris to return, actually. It's been interesting developments with the Pentagon. I'm calling it the Pentagon, not papers, the Pentagon leak. There's some stuff coming up about that um so yeah and we've got all the liquid bomb plot so you remember i mentioned about the september the 12th attitude mm-hmm. in the cia that's where i learned about that was um in an interview i just recently did about the liquid bomb plot which was almost al-qaeda's most successful bombing campaign which thankfully the cia um mi5 and the thames valley police managed to stop Hmm. So uh, that's coming up uh, in sort of May, that one. So yeah, oh, there you go. Oh, nice. One to check out. Obviously, there'll be links in the show notes below yeah. to all of that, and I'm sure we'll be adding you on social media when this episode's out, so people can find you that way too. Chris, yeah. thank you, thank you, sir. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Cam. It's been great. Well, there you go, folks. That was Body of Lies. Cam, the question goes to you. We kind of hinted at it earlier, but what have we got up next week? Well, yes, we are talking to screenwriter Michael Frost Beckner about the making of the movie Spy Game. I guess the most controversial film to never make the knock list. We are going to talk to him about that film and all of the development that went into it, as well as the future of Spy Game. Yes, some uh, exclusive details dropped in this one. Look out for that. Uh, We tackle whether that should have made the knock list or not. We take your questions to Michael Frost Beckner. It is potentially one of the most insightful interviews we have ever done. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out our interview next week with Mr. Michael Frost Beckner. And if you like what you heard on this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, folks, I'm going to go get drunk and take Cam to see The Lion King again. <laughs>